Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're reading from John's Gospel, chapter 12, starting to read at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Penny, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open. Um, For those of you who've not been here uh, for the last few weeks, or or maybe at all, you won't know that we're looking through John chapters 11 and 12. Um, Last week, we looked at the very first part um, of that passage that Penny's just read for us. Uh, So we're looking from verse 27 onwards um, this week. Uh, Chris has prayed for us, so um, let's dive uh, straight in. Some years back, as, as a church... Uh, Some of you will remember this, and many of you won't because you weren't here. Some years back, we uh, said about asking our friends one question. We said, if you could ask God one question and you knew it would be answered, what would it be? And uh, we gathered all their answers in. Uh, We asked well over a 1,000 people. Uh, The top question people wanted uh, uh, to ask God was um, about suffering in the world. But the second one, and the one that I think is relevant for us tonight, is what's the meaning of life? It seems that people we know, our friends and family, work colleagues and neighbours, 
are going through life with no idea what's it, what it's all about. Uh, people who are well-adjusted, they appear self-assured, people who have so much materially are asking deep down when you begin to scratch them, what is the point of it all? What is the meaning of life? And let me suggest to you that, that is, it's no coincidence that as we as a nation have turned our back on God, we have increasingly felt a sense of hopelessness and meaninglessness. That is because we were made to glorify God. And if my aim in life is anything other than that, than the glory of God, then sooner or later I will be left with a feeling of so what? So what is all this about? Living for anything other than the glory of God will leave me feeling all at sea and at odds with myself. And what is true of unbelievers is true of Christians as well. You see, although it is a misnomer, many Christians are living for something else other than the glory of God. Uh, They attend church, they can tell you uh, when they became a Christian, they're involved in a small group, they serve in the church, they can even state that the meaning of life is to live for the glory of God, but they don't actually live it. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a number of people here who, as I say this, will go, yeah, that is me. If you're honest, you'll not be fulfilled and you don't really know where you're going in life, even though you're a Christian. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, Jesus never felt that. That's not a surprise, is it? He never felt, I don't know what life's about. He never felt, I don't know where I'm going in life. And as we turn to John chapter 12 this evening, we see that the glory of God was front and center for his whole life. So that even when he had the most difficult decision ever, the glory of God was what drove him. Well, that brings us to our first point. If you like taking points, they'll appear on the screen. Uh, Jesus chose the glory of God, verses 27 and 28. Uh, Last week we heard the great challenge to sacrificially lay down our lives to follow Jesus. If you weren't here, you can get the the tape. Sorry, that's a throwback from years ago. You can listen online uh, if you weren't here. Um, This week, that is exactly what Jesus is facing, the challenge to lay down his life. He's on the verge of sacrificially giving his life on the cross. And listen to the turmoil he's going through. Look at verse 27. Now my heart is troubled, he says. It doesn't really come across as strongly as it should in the English there, but Jesus was beside himself at the thought of going to the cross. He will have seen people executed in that most barbaric way. He knew the physical agony of dying such a cruel death. Listen to how one writer describes Jesus' crucifixion. Simon is ordered to place the patibulum, that is the crossbeam, on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum is then lifted in place at the top of the stipes, the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. 
as he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the, up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upwards to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomena occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself um, in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp, to, to gasp in small gulps of air. Jesus knew the physical pain that awaited him. But interestingly, despite reading all that, it's not the physical pain that is ever emphasised in the Bible. You will struggle to find it mentioned. There was a greater agony that caused his heart to be so troubled in verse 27 and that was the spiritual punishment of the cross we've sung about it in our songs already Jesus was going to have all the sin of the world laid upon him to begin to understand the agony of that cast your mind back to a time when you felt really guilty think of a time when you did something you deeply regretted remember how it ate away at you Remember how you wished, how you longed that you could turn the clock back. Think about the emotional anguish you went through. The sleepless nights, the internal turmoil. Think about the times that 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 guilt, the way that that guilt ruined a a relationship. I think of men and women who sat in my study and confessed to me that they've had an adulterous affair. They speak of the guilt tearing them apart. There's nowhere they can go to be free from it. They tell me of the anguish of the relationship being broken. That's what Jesus felt on the cross as he bore the sin of the world. Imagine the agony when you felt guilty and, and, and multiply them billions of times. That's what Jesus felt as every sin of every person who's ever lived was placed on him and the father's face was turned away. The father, unable to look at Jesus as he bore the sin of the world. Jesus' perfect relationship with his father, broken. The thought of facing God's judgment and being separated from his father was so unbearable that verse 27, his heart was troubled, deeply troubled. And yet he knew that this was precisely what he came to earth for. Verse 27, now my heart is troubled and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
For this very reason, he came to die a sacrificial death, a sin-bearing death on the cross for the salvation of men and women. And he knew that God would be glorified through the cross. And that trumped everything. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. As utterly painful as it will be, I'll go to the cross because the cross will bring glory to you, Father. So, Father, glorify your name through the cross. Which brings us to our second point. The cross glorifies God. Verses 28 to 33. See, look, as Jesus prayed that that, that God the Father would glorify his name, then, verse 28, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, please hear this. The glory of God is what God is all about. It's crucial we understand this, or or we could find it quite repulsive. People have told me how horrible they find the idea of God wanting to glorify himself. It makes God sound as if he's a selfish, egotistical megalomaniac, just out for himself, desperate for glory, wanting people to see how great he is and to worship him. Look, if you or I were like that, people would find us insufferable, unbearable to be around. Have you met people like that? They always want to be the limelight. So we need to understand that for God to want us to glorify him is for our good. I think of the famous first question in the Westminster Confession. You might never have heard of it, but it goes like this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or as the Christian preacher and author John Piper helpfully says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The reason we were made was to glorify God. And here's the crucial thing to grasp. As we glorify God, we find ourselves... As we make God, uh, the glory of God, the goal of our lives, we discover what life is all about. When we live our lives in order to glorify God, we flourish because that's what we were made for. John Piper explains, God is the one being in the world for whom the most loving act is self-exaltation. For it is he and he alone who will satisfy our hearts. So do you see the point? God wanting us to glorify him, he's not because he's a lonely, self-centered narcissist who's desperate for praise. He wants us to be seeking his glory because that is what is best for us. Because that's what we were made for. Living for the glory of God is the way we become most fulfilled and the most human we can be, which means that if God were not to seek his glory and not to tell us to glorify him, he would be selling us short giving us less than he should give us. He would be less than loving, which simply he cannot be. God tells us to glorify him because living to glorify God will be the most deeply satisfying and fulfilling way to live life. Jesus knew that. Am I going to avoid the cross? No, no, I want to glorify you, so I'll go to the cross. This is why as we turn away from God as a nation, more and more, So more and more people are desperately searching for meaning in life. And more and more people are concluding that life is meaningless and hopeless. God's glory is our greatest need. And so as the Father says, verse 28, I have glorified my name and will glorify it again. 
That is a good thing. It's not only for his good, but it's for our good. And it is something that we must hear. You see, after the voice from heaven said, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it, so we read, verse 29, the crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. See, what God said in verse 28 was for the benefit of the crowd then and for us now as we read these words. You need to know that glorifying God is what life's all about. But as the voice of the Father spoke from heaven, the crowd didn't get it. They were confused, verse 29. And so what Jesus says in that is he explains how the cross, what the cross will do and how the cross will glorify God. There are four sub-points under this point. The first is this. The cross shows the world to be guilty. These are all ways of showing how God is glorified through the cross. The cross shows the world to be guilty, verse 31. See what it says? Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now look, if you've got your theological brain in gear this evening, as you read that, you might well object. You might well be thinking to yourself, no, no, the cross was not a judgment on the world, but it was to take judgment from the world. But what's going on here? Well, of course, you're right, but at another level, the cross exposes the world for what it is. In that sense, the cross is a judgment, a verdict on the world. Let me explain. Just think about it like this. The creator came into the world, and we put him on a cross. That is what we do to God. One writer put it like this. The cold, callous, calculated, cruel corruption of human wickedness is placarded in the most virulent form at the cross. Jesus came into the world to save us and we rejected him. And not just by ignoring him or pushing him to the margins of society, but by crucifying him. We wanted to get rid of him out of our lives and off this planet and we subjected him to the most barbaric death anyone could imagine. In Jesus, God showed us what he's really like. In his miracles, we saw how powerful and mighty he is. In his teaching, we saw how wise he is. In his standing up to the authorities, we saw how trustworthy and just he is. In his life, we saw how compassionate and utterly loving he is. Here was the most beautiful and balanced and brilliant and unblemished life that ever graced this planet. And we nailed him to a cross. That is a damning judgment on the world, isn't it? At the cross we see what humanity, what you and I, are really capable of. And we see what we think of our maker. And so, verse 31, at the cross now is the time for judgment. And so at the cross, there is a guilty verdict that is passed on the world. Guilty of rejecting God. Now here's the question, how does that glorify God? Well, very simply, we have done the most terrible thing to God and we are guilty of the most terrible thing in the universe and yet he still loves us and he loves us enough to die for us. What a God. What a glorious God. The cross shows the world to be guilty and therefore shows how glorious God is. Secondly, the cross shows that Satan is defeated. Verse 31, now the prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world is the devil. 
He struts around this world as if he owns the place, but at the cross he was driven out, dethroned, defeated. Now again, if you've got your theological brain in gear, you may want to object at that point. Doesn't the New Testament tell us that Satan is still today prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? Doesn't he still love to have Christians for breakfast? Well, yes, he does. But he has no power over us anymore, not since the cross. Look, Satan is described as the great deceiver and the great accuser. Think back to Genesis chapter 2. He deceives by, or Genesis chapter 3, he deceives by telling us that God isn't a good God. And he persuades us then not to follow God's ways. And when we listen to him, the moment we kick God out of our lives or ignore his law, Satan becomes the great accuser and says, now look what you've done. And he says, you can't go back to God now, not now you've done that. He accuses us and leaves us feeling trapped in guilt as we remember our past. But the cross debunks all that. As I look at the cross now, I can't be deceived by the evil one because the cross shows me unequivocally that God is a very good God. And even when I do listen to the evil one's lies and fail to, 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 to live for God, when I turn away from God the, and the evil one accuses me and tells me there's no way back to God, then I look at the cross and I know there's always a way back to God. My past can be wiped clean. I can come back to God in an instant. Because of the cross, Satan can no longer accuse me or hold any accusation against me. See, the glory of God is seen at the cross as Jesus drives out the prince of this world. He no longer can hold me. Isn't that glorious? What a God. What a glorious God. The cross shows the world to be guilty and shows how glorious God is. The cross shows that Satan is defeated and shows how glorious God is. Thirdly, the cross draws all men to Jesus. Verse 32. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. All men here doesn't mean all men, all people without exception, but all people without distinction. So this doesn't mean that everyone will become a follower of Jesus, but that all kinds of people, people from all nations, in that sense, all people will be drawn to Jesus through the cross. And as we sit here this evening, we in part are testament to that. Here we are living 2,000 years later and 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem and we're praising God and rejoicing in the cross. Again, we've been singing about the cross all night. And all over the world, millions of people have gathered today on every continent of the world and from thousands of different people groups, people have gathered to praise God, drawn to Jesus by the cross. Because at the cross we see the justice of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God and the great love of God. And it overwhelms us. And like a giant magnet, it irresistibly pulls us to Jesus. And then drawn to Jesus, the cross is our motivation to live wholeheartedly and sacrificial lives for God. And as we do that, God is glorified. You see what's going on in these verses? You see he's, Jesus is saying, I want to glorify God. That's the one, that he's the one I want to glorify. God says, yes, you will glorify. I have been glorified. I will be glorified again. They don't get it. And then Jesus explains how the cross glorifies God. And fourthly, under this point, the cross exalts Jesus, verse 32. See, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
I will draw all men to myself. The lifting up of Jesus from the earth is the cross. That's very clear in verse 33. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now here's the thing. As Jesus was physically lifted up on a cross, he was metaphorically lifted up, exalted and glorified. It's amazing, isn't it? The cross looked like a place of utter rejection. It actually revealed his glorious love. The cross looked like the moment of defeat by the dark forces of this world. It was, in fact, God's victory over Satan, as we've just been thinking. At the cross at the time, people scorned and rejected Jesus, but it turned out to be a death that irresistibly draws men and women from all over the world to Jesus. As Jesus was lifted up on the cross physically, he was exalted as king, humbling humanity, defeating the devil, magnetically attracting people to himself. Do you see the cross glorifies God? Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Verse 28, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That happened at the cross. But people don't get it, which brings us to our third point. Jesus, the light, is the way to glory. Verses 34 to 36, and we're nearly done. See, as Jesus explained how glorious the cross is, the crowd were left perplexed. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be, must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See, here were people looking at their Bibles, what we now call the Old Testament, and they're scratching their heads and saying, how can this be? I thought that the Scriptures taught that the Messiah, the Christ, would return to reign forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? But they don't get it. We might say... They're in the dark. And so Jesus told them, verse 35, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. They are in the dark, and when we're in the dark, we don't know where we're going. When we were staying on um, campsites, Uh, on holiday this year a number of times I needed to get up in the middle of the night and make my way to the toilet block yes I'm of an age where I have to do that and it was a perilous journey in the dark I couldn't see where I was going or what was in front of me I couldn't even find my way to the toilet block at times that was perilous if I hadn't had the torchlight from my mobile phone who knows if I'd have ever found my way to the toilet block or perhaps worse found my way back to the right camper van that would have been embarrassing Now, what is true of physical darkness is true of spiritual darkness too. Walking through life not knowing where we're going or what life is all about is hopeless. We're staggering around in the dark. That's how many of our friends and family and colleagues and neighbours feel about life. Well-adjusted, apparently self-assured people who have so much they, they don't know the meaning of life. And because this nation has rejected Jesus, we are only going to meet more and more people who are hopelessly, aimlessly wandering through life. So Jesus says to this crowd at the time, verse 36, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. See what he's saying? In trusting Jesus Christ, we find the meaning of life, which is, of course, to glorify God. At the cross, we see the glory of God. You put your trust in Jesus and suddenly, ah, now I get the cross. Now I see the meaning of life. It is to glorify God, everything we've been looking at. So if you're not trusting Jesus Christ today, listen to him. Listen to him say to you today, verse 36, put your trust in the light 
so you may become sons of the light. And when you become sons and daughters of the light, you can suddenly see and you find meaning. Trusting Jesus means you you get the point of it all. But listen, while discovering the meaning of life, while discovering that that all begins when we first trust in Jesus, let me say it doesn't end there. See, I reckon there are many, many Christians who need to reorientate their lives afresh. Many who come here every week who can tell you when they became a Christian and who are part of a small group and who serve in some way, who can even verbalize that Jesus is the meaning of life, and yet they feel kind of lost. Does this ring any bells with anyone? The reason that you can be a real Christian and yet feel lost is because the focus and goal of your life is not the glory of God but something else. Something else has begun to grab your heart and be the most important thing to you and be the thing that drives you day by day. But you don't have to live like that for long before you begin to think, so what? So what's it all about? Even if you can articulate the meaning of life to, be, to live for the glory of God, if that's not your goal, you will start to feel as if you're in the dark, even as a Christian. So today, Christian, if this is you, verse 36, put your trust in the light. And end of verse 36, live as a son, a daughter of the light. Look at the cross and see the splendor of the glory of God. And even though it'll be hard, as we heard last week, to live a sacrificial life for Jesus, live full out for the glory of God because that's what you were made for and that is how you will live life to the full. That is how you will have a full life. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus who, even though he faced such a terrible death, had your glory as his primary aim and so was prepared to go through the hard thing in order for you to be glorified. Thank you that you did glorify your name and showed your great glory at the cross of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would hear that voice that was spoken from heaven back then. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That we would hear it today, knowing that that is what life is all about. That we may indeed be those who, as much as we can, want to live for your glory. And in doing so, discover life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.